For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, the results of this week's special election. Learn how one woman is making a difference when it comes to mental health care in rural Arizona. Check in on a community effort to help female entrepreneurs start businesses in Tucson. And meet a woman who overcame every obstacle on her way to making a lifelong dream come true. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The results of Proposition 123 are in, and the margin of victory was razor thin. Yes, votes have an edge of more than one and a half percentage points, with not enough votes left to count to change the outcome. Christopher Conover reports. Before the election, the campaigns surrounding Prop 123 were often characterized as David versus Goliath. The pro-Prop 123 side raised $5 million and rolled out high-profile endorsements on both sides of the political aisle. The no side raised $15,000 and had only current state treasurer Jeff DeWitt and a handful of his predecessors to sound off against the proposal. Despite the long financial odds, campaign veterans like Republican strategist Barrett Marson say the tight race is no surprise. It would sound like this is something that should be an easy win. More money for education without even taxes. However, people are actually a little put off uh, by some of by some of the uh, issues here in the state trust land reform. But not only that, people are often confused about state trust land reform. It's a very difficult subject. It has been defeated. Or state trust land reform has been defeated at the ballot box numerous times in the last. Uh, you know, decade or so. A complicated topic was not the only issue that contributed to a tight race on Election Day. I'm sure some people felt, and maybe certainly in the Tucson area, that this lets the legislature and our state leaders off the hook. That essentially, we the voters are doing the job of providing more education funding that our state leaders should actually be doing. When the legislature approved the language for Prop 123, it passed with bipartisan support. Democratic State Representative Randy Fries says even though he voted for it on the floor of the House, the close vote at the ballot box shows voters were dissatisfied with the plan. 49.5% of people as of today said no up front. And there is a distinct proportion of those who said yes who don't like this plan but are voting for it anyway because our schools need money. And they don't trust the legislature to own up to that and do it the right way by using the general fund. Representative Freeze says part of the problem in the legislature is philosophical. So we still have this, this, po this polarizing view of what proper funding is. Funding for education is always a hot-button topic in the legislature, but Republican strategist Marson says don't look for state lawmakers to pay much attention to the closeness of the final vote count for Prop 123. So long as this does pass, there will be no long-term look back by the legislature or the governor. As long as this passes, this will pass and it becomes law and we've increased funding for education without uh, raising taxes, and that will be uh, the takeaway. There won't be any 
inward assessment, uh, I don't believe, no matter how close the election is, so long as it passes. Voter turnout was low for Tuesday's election, about 30 percent statewide and closer to 40 percent locally. Pima County election officials say those numbers are low, but they're in line with other special elections. Pima County Election Director Brad Nelson says the slow results are due to a large number of people keeping their early ballots and dropping them off on Election Day. It's becoming more and more prevalent that a lot of people are holding onto their early ballots and dropping them off at the polls. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We want people to make informed decisions, and if they need that time, then so be it. Prop 123 was not the only question on the special election ballot. Prop 124, part of a pension reform package for police and firefighters, passed with a 40 percent margin. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Christopher Conover. In rural communities across Arizona, residents face a shortage of mental health services. That's something that can jeopardize their wellness and their lives. Next, Gisela Tellis explores the reason behind the shortage and what one woman is doing to fight back. I'm on the road a lot uh, between uh, Florence, Coolidge, um, Santan Valley. Almost every day I, I have a meeting of some sort. Tonight, Sherry George logs another 20 miles. Farm fields rush by as she makes her way to one more meeting. The Santan Valley resident is on a mission. She's fighting to get her neighbors the help they need by bringing mental health care services to rural Arizona. On a daily basis here in the state of Arizona, Kids and adults are denied access to treatment for mental health and substance use, or as they call it, behavioral health. I mean, it is, it is truly shocking. It isn't shocking for Dan Dirksen. As director of the Arizona Center for Rural Health, Dirksen works with rural communities and tracks their access to care. He says more than a million Arizonans live in areas where mental health services can be hard to come by. We have shortages, the highest need specialties uh, that we identify, behavioral health providers, psychologists, behavioral health workers, psychiatrists in rural areas. Once you get outside of Phoenix and Tucson and some of the cities like Flagstaff and Yuma and a few others, you really are in quite rural and often frontier areas of the state where there may not be any health providers uh, at all for many miles. Part of the problem is attracting health professionals to those areas and keeping them there. Most of our training in health professions is in big cities. Where do people end up in practice when they graduate? In big cities, often within a couple miles of where they train. So our challenge is really how do we move that health professions training pipeline for behavioral health and some of these high-need specialties closer to the areas of need. Rural communities face other challenges, too. Sherry says she has seen lack of funding, transportation, and coordination between services keep many rural residents from seeking or receiving the care they need. There's no um, agency 
acting on behalf of the county and explaining what the needs of the county are. And then there's nobody out in the rural communities to help the families. Any type of services are probably 70 miles away in a lot of cases. And then if you do have your loved one over in Phoenix um, at a facility, if you're lucky enough to even get them there, how do you visit them? How do you support them? Uh, you know, they're so far away. And then many families can't afford the gas, you know, back and forth. It costs a lot of money to go back and forth. That's why Sherry keeps hitting the road. She's inspired by the struggling families she meets in rural Pinal County and by her son, Jay. A key thing about Jay when he was small is he was always for the underdog, so to speak. He was always concerned about other kids and if they were being picked on by someone else. He wanted to defend them. Always concerned for people who um, were more vulnerable and needed pr protection or help. In high school, Jay began to suffer from depression and self-medicate with drugs. He said that the reason why he used crystal meth was to get rid of the voices in his head. It's like it filled a void, and he said it got rid of the misery and sadness that he felt. He thought at that point in time that he could control it, and it would just be to, you know, um, help him cope with life, essentially. And, of course, that did not happen. In early 2010, Jay told his mother he'd found a facility in Phoenix, nearly 50 miles from Santan Valley, that could treat both his substance abuse and his worsening mental illness. He uh, actually put his belongings that he thought he would need, his personal care items for the hospital, in a pillowcase. And he and I uh, walked through the doors of this facility. I was with him through the whole time. and. When we walked through there, he had, I'm sorry, when we walked through there, he had this incredible look of hope on his face. I hadn't seen that in a long time. I'll never forget that. They came out um, to get him, and they said they would need to do an assessment. When he came out, he had this crestfallen look on his face. And he said, Mom, they said that I'm not bad enough and they're not going to admit me. Just weeks later, Jay Joachim took his own life. It was then that Sherry set out to learn why her son had been unable to get help. I remember having an epiphany one day when I spoke to an assistant director at a state agency and explained um, some of the barriers that people were encountering and that we had encountered. And he said, if you don't like it, go talk to the legislature. And he was just completely uncaring and unconcerned and just responded with that very terse answer. And so I remember thinking, you know what? If nobody else is going to help these people who need help, then I'm going to start. We have a few people here in our area that want to do something. So if, if nobody else is going to do it, we're going to do it. I just wanted to go around the room and introduce everybody. The Santan Valley Substance Abuse Coalition held its first meeting in October of 2011. Since then, it has pushed for statewide reforms that could help rural residents. 
It has also helped nearly 200 families find services and poured thousands of hours into researching the behavioral health care needs of rural communities. It is critical that every county have a community coalition or an access point to care that can coordinate the behavioral health needs for that county with state and service providers. We have to make sure that anyone who needs that help gets it. Community activism like Sherry's can go a long way. Patricia Rogers, the outreach coordinator for the Southeastern Arizona chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, has seen community and peer-to-peer groups step in to offer needed services in rural Cochise County. Some of them have mobile outreach programs where they travel to different communities and and have meetings. The fact that there are smaller communities and so much, so many people know each other can encourage people to help each other. But Dan Dirksen cautions that rural communities can't be expected to do it all on their own. If we don't deal with it well by having the types of health providers we need in the communities where they're most needed readily accessible, can't be three months when you're in crisis and you need immediate help, then we pay for it 10 times more by incarcerating people, putting them in jails, you know, all these types of things that we do when we don't have an adequate health system for behavioral health services. If we don't invest, we're gonna pay for it down the road. It's just a matter of where you decide to pay and how much collateral damage you're willing to do to individuals and to families by not getting the services they need where they most need them. In late 2015, the coalition led by Sherry George helped secure the first comprehensive behavioral health center in Santan Valley. When we had the grand opening of the La Frontera Impact Facility here in December, I actually had someone come up to me and say, there should be a plaque on the front of this facility that says, in honor of J. Joachim. What our hope is, is that Jay's story will inspire decision makers to implement changes to the mental health and substance abuse delivery systems here in the state of Arizona so that everyone has an opportunity to get better. Sherry's Fight was produced by Gisela Tellis and was recognized with an honorable mention by the National Press Foundation for their Carolyn C. Mattingly Award for Mental Health Reporting. You can watch the television version of the story you just heard at azpm.org. House of Neighborly Service in the city of South Tucson has been a safe place for the neighboring community to come together for 70 years. It serves as a senior center, offers child literacy programs, and provides a community garden and playground. Now, the YWCA of Tucson manages the House of Neighborly Service and is bringing over their Women's Business Center to begin a new program designed for female entrepreneurs. Amanda Martinez reports. Alicia Bustos is a businesswoman, 
For the last six years, she has worked as a cook at an olive garden, but on her days off, she can be found in her kitchen making tamales, tortillas, and birthday cakes for her friends, families, and neighbors. On the side, she sells cosmetics. Yes, natural for me, exactly. I've been in business all the time, all the time. Alicia loves food, and she loves to cook. She's been in the food business since 1988 when she opened a tortilla factory with her husband in Mammoth, Arizona. But in 2009, they left the business behind. Uh, we decided to sell it because we depend for like eight, ten people. And then we made it like 800,000 tortillas a day, handmade. So that's many, many tortillas. At the same time, she had a Mexican food restaurant named Alicia's Cafe from 2000 to 2003 and helped her sister-in-law with another restaurant for two years. Now, Alicia wants to break back into the restaurant industry and plans to open up a Mexican restaurant somewhere along South 6th Avenue. This time, she is doing it with help from the YWCA's Women's Business Center and the new space for women entrepreneurs created at the House of Neighborly Service in the city of South Tucson. The YWCA acquired the community center in the summer of 2015. Marisol Flores Aguirre is the director of the programming at the House of Neighborly Service. We knew that there's a lot of entrepreneurs that are coming out of South Tucson, folks that may not even associate themselves as entrepreneurs, but, you know, they, they sell their goods, they have catering businesses. And so the Women's Business Center specifically wanted to focus on South Tucson as a hub for that without a lot of the structural support that is offered to larger communities like the city of Tucson, like Oro Valley, some of those other spaces. The center will eventually offer one-on-one business counseling classes and nuts and bolts business development classes, amongst others, all for free. A lot of things that we see with women entrepreneurs is that they feel like they're on their own. I'm out here. I don't know any other women business owner. I don't know who to ask. I'm, I'm intimidated by that process. And so what we're trying to do is create a space where folks can come together, and then once, they're, once they leave, they still have this network of support. These challenges do not stop Latina entrepreneurs. According to a study from the National Women's Business Council, there are close to 800,000 Latina-owned businesses in the United States. That's about 10% of all women-owned businesses in the country. The Women's Business Center and the House of Neighborly Service know they must adapt their programming to fit the needs of the South Tucson community. When you're looking at the city of South Tucson and there are largely Latino population, largely indigenous populations here in South Tucson, you need to find ways that are going to be culturally relevant to their experience here. So we're, we've done just that. We've taken deep analysis into what are the gaps in the community, whether it's language barriers, whether it's access to information. We're focusing at the Women's Business Center. We talk about leveling the playing field for immigrant women, Latina entrepreneurs that historically are kind of overlooked. One way the center is reaching out to the South Tucson community is through a series of cafecitos. These are informal conversations where women can come in and ask questions about their business over coffee and pastries. Victor Mercado is the deputy director of the Women's Business Center and helps with classes and trainings at the House of Neighborly Service. You know, the cafecito really is, is, is really our way to introduce the services to H&S. Um, and I think, you know, based on, on how that goes, I think we'll determine how many office hours uh, per week we'll be able to, to deliver. And really what we're trying to do is, is to, to get a sense of, of people's interest in, in different types of content. You know, if, if we're seeing a lot of interest from food entrepreneurs, then that really allows us to tailor our workshops to food entrepreneurship. 
So far, Alicia Bustos is the only woman to attend one of these cafecitos. A lot of that conversation was really us getting to know her as an entrepreneur, you know, building a, a profile and really trying to understand our ne- her needs. So what we really try to do is, again, try to bring a real personalized experience to these women. I mean, we really are probably providing some of the best consulting, business consulting in Southern Arizona for free. Alicia is now looking for a way to finance her restaurant. According to the National Women's Business Council, Latinas do not have the same access to banks to get loans. About 40% of Latinas borrow money from family or friends, compared to about 20% of white women. This is not going to stop Alicia. I feel proud to myself, because anything I, I like it and I want it and I made it, I feel proud, I'm proud about me, you know? Because when you're working for, for really hard to do this, is satisfaction for myself. You can find this story on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org for more information. I'm Amanda Martinez for Arizona Spotlight. Next on Dimelo, one woman's dream finally realized. This story is from a postcard that came to us from the Dimelo mailbox at the El Rio Community Health Center. Thank you for uh, the end of a great year and graduation for many of you, yes? Graduation. It's a step towards moving on, towards the future, the start of many things to come. And it's a roller coaster of emotion for not only students, but their families too. For one woman here, it's also been a long time coming. Um, But this year, the award goes to Karen Schaffner. The Catherine Ann Governall Perseverance Award is given to a graduating student who has persevered in the face of difficult challenges. At the age of 58, after stopping and starting her studies over the course of 41 years, Karen Schaffner is finally graduating with her bachelor's degree in journalism. Yes, she did it. It's been quite a journey. And during a hectic graduation week, that accomplishment has taken time to sink in. It is crazy. This is the first time I've allowed myself to think I did something. Getting a degree has been Karen's lifelong dream ever since she was a teenager. My parents were very traditionally Mexican. When I came of age at that time, uh, in the 70s, it was right when the women's movement was really becoming strong. And so they were really, really opposed to that. For my brothers, it was become a professional. For me, it was marry a professional. A few years ago, there was a moment that awoke that dream again. Um, we, my husband and I had just come off um, nine months of unemployment and uh, we went back to my mother's house and we stayed there while he found another job and that was in Pennsylvania. And during that time my father was dying of cancer. Nine months later he got a job here uh, and one day he came home from work and he said to me, he said, I was wondering, what would you do if something happened to me? Her husband's question made Karen think about her past relationship with education and her possible future one. 
Karen had tried to go back to school in the past, but prioritized other things. Her three kids, the household budget, her husband. But her kids were grown up now, and she had found a mentor at a community newspaper in a little town in Pennsylvania who taught her how to write obituaries and eventually features. She loved it. So this time, with a renewed focus on journalism, she felt maybe she could do it. So I said, well, I guess I'm going back to school. And that's what I did. I looked ahead at the end and I thought, don't look there. You won't finish. I just can't look that far ahead. It cost us a lot for me to go. And not just in terms of money. You know, I should be working, not going to school. I should be bringing in money, not costing us money. Jude became, Jude is my husband, he took the back seat. He had to. We both knew this is what's important. I was totally terrified by them. I didn't know how they were going to take me. And I didn't know if I was going to spend three years in isolation. Um, I had my, my book bag, which I bought special. And I had my new pens and my notebooks, you know, so I was all ready. I got there real early and I was standing in the hall and I had my little cell phone and I was texting my daughter. And, you know, I looked around me and I saw all these kids doing, all these young people doing the same thing. And I thought, they're as nervous as I am. I'm not the only one that's nervous. And it, it made me feel better. Now that her classes are over and her papers are written, just like any fresh graduate, Karen is anxious for the future and the change it may bring. She'll be interning this summer at the Sierra Vista Herald. But I, I don't know. Beyond that, I just don't know. So that's a little scary. At graduation, Karen puts that worry aside for the moment and finally feels the weight of her accomplishment. Her bedazzled cap says it all. It says, dreams do come true. 1975 to 2016, that's 41 years. Woo, I did it. It only took 41 years, but I did it. It does have a dinosaur, a pterodactyl, because when I came to school, I was a dinosaur. And now I've evolved into a bird. And I want to fly. Karen brought her story to us via our mailbox in El Rio Community Health Center. Thanks to Karen for sharing her story with us. For Dimelo Stories, I'm Sofia Palisaka. Karen Schaffner and her family celebrated her dream coming true with a trip to Disneyland. Dimelo is a community-driven storytelling project. Add your voice. Go to dimelostories.org or drop a postcard in one of the special mailboxes around town. Dimelo is part of a national initiative called Finding America, presented in collaboration with AIR, the Association for Independence in Radio, supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Some music in this story was performed by Siksa. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. 
The production engineer is Jim Blackwood with assistance from Isaac Rodriguez. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.